If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis. Turn to Genesis 39. That's where we'll continue our study today. Genesis 39, we've almost made it to the 40s, and that is bringing us one step closer to the end of the book. The title of the message is The Lord, or Yahweh, is with Joseph. Yahweh is with Joseph, and you'll see that expression uh, almost a half a dozen times in Genesis 39, so that's a clear indication that that is the theme of the chapter, so that's what I titled the message. The Lord is with Joseph, or Yahweh is with Joseph. Well, as you know, we are in the final Toledot of the book of Genesis, the Jacob Toledot, which began in chapter 37 and ends at the end of the book in chapter 50. And as we've discovered, this Toledot begins by placing two of Jacob's sons, Joseph, the 11th born, and Judah, the 4th born, at the four as potential heirs of the Genesis 3.15 seed. Carrie and I were talking about this before uh, class started, and it, it's really tough when you come, especially to the Joseph narrative, you know it. Everybody in here is familiar with it. It's one of the more familiar stories in the Old Testament, especially Genesis. Uh, but, so it's hard to have any sort of suspense or anticipation because you know what happens. But if you're reading it for your first time and you come to chapter 37 and 38 in the Jacob Toledot, you're kind of at a loss of words. We start with Jacob, or we start with Joseph, rather, and some bad things happen to him, and then he's off the map to Egypt, and then we pick up with Judah in 38, and then when we get to 39, we're, we're back with Joseph. So if you haven't read it before, you're kind of hanging there wondering what will transpire. Well, thankfully, the story ends on a great note, and we'll get there in chapter 50. But as it stands right now, two of Jacob's sons have been presented as potential heirs of the Genesis 3.15 seed. That's one of the major themes, if not the theme, of Genesis. As we've noted, Genesis 37 begins with the story of Joseph. He is presented as Jacob's favorite son because he was born from his favorite wife. He demonstrates this reality by giving him a special coat. Yeah, a very colored coat, the coat of many colors or the coat of palms that sometimes expressed. He's also, in chapter 37, presented as one who can interpret dreams. Now, that plays a major role there in 37, but we'll see later on in Genesis that is critical. And then, and this is where it really goes downhill for Joseph, as he interprets that first dream, he is presented as one who will rule over his brothers. That presents a major problem, a major problem. His brothers then despise him and want him dead, uh, so they throw him in a pit, and then ultimately that is resolved because the fourth-born Judah suggests that they get him out of the pit, and they sell him to the Ishmaelites uh, for 20 pieces of silver. After that, they take Joseph's coat, and they dip it in goat's blood, and then they present that coat, if you remember, to Jacob, letting Jacob know that Joseph, his favorite is apparently dead. 
Well, that chapter ends telling us that Joseph, he is not dead. He has arrived actually in Egypt when he was sold to the Ishmaelites, and he's been sold to Potiphar, and this is key, who is an officer of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. So the favored son seems to be out of the picture for now, but if he is gone, which of the brothers will take his spot? That brings us to Genesis 38, where we were last time, and that begins the story of Judah. You remember, Judah's story starts off pretty bad. He's unrighteous, and not only is he unrighteous, but we're told that his sons are wicked and unrighteous. And if you remember, by the way, of narrator comment that God actually takes the life of two of his sons because of their idolatry and their wickedness. Then Tamar enters the story, the widow of Judah's first son, and she concocts a plan to deceive Judah, to deceive Judah into having sexual relations uh, with her. Remember, she dresses as a prostitute, she covers her face, and then she conceives. And remember, although this sexual act is sinful, the narrator stresses the fact that Judah does not know, or he did not know, that it was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Later, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant with twins, and he is the one that is responsible for it. And this leads, thankfully to Judah's awareness and confession of his own sin. His character is transformed from unrighteous to righteous. And at the end of chapter 38, and you can see it with your own eyes, Tamar gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah, which connects us to twins born earlier in Genesis, Jacob and Esau. But hopefully you have at least marked or underlined or noted in your Bible that Judah's son Perez is key to the larger story of Scripture. In fact, we'll later find out in Genesis 49.10 that the Messiah, the promised seed, will come from the line of Judah. What we find out in the book of Ruth, in particular, chapter 4 through, or chapter 4, 18 through 22, that Perez, from him, ultimately comes David, and then we know from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, that the king, this royal deliverer, the Genesis 3.15 seed, will come from his line. And then we find in Matthew 1, Luke 3, that Jesus is a descendant of Judah. So chapter 38 plays a critical role in that story. Now, Chapters 39 through 41 return to the story of Joseph in Egypt. It picks up with that uh, plot. So we'll get back into the Jacob and Judah and brothers situation later on in chapter 42. But for this week and the next two weeks, as we work through 39, 40, and 41, we will be focusing our attention on Joseph. Now, just to give you a little idea of where we are geographically, according to chapter 37, verse 17, Joseph found his brothers in Dothan, and that's where they throw him into a pit. And of course, the narrative at the end of 37 and at the beginning of 39 picks up in Egypt, picks up in Egypt. So we have moved a great ways distance-wise 
from where we were in 37. Just to set your mind in terms of a dating of where we are at, most scholars date the time or the life of Joseph from 915 B.C. to 1805 B.C. So that's where we are uh, just in terms of a timeline. And as far as Joseph's age, when we get to 39, we are told that Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And then in Genesis 41, we are told that he is 30 years old when he stands before Pharaoh. So we're somewhere in between that 17 to 30-year range. So what's the theme of Genesis 39? Well, let me give it to you, and I think it's there on your handout as well. God blesses Joseph, or the Lord is with Joseph by providentially governing his rise to power in Egypt and preserving his righteous character in the face of temptation. That's essentially the theme of Genesis 39. And I've already mentioned to you Uh, before that the key expression in this chapter, it happens five times, this expression or a similar expression is the Lord was with Joseph. Now this tips us off to the fact that things aren't going to go well for Joseph. We saw that in 37. But the key indication here is that God knows this and is carefully orchestrating and crafting his movement of Joseph to where he needs him to be. And that's really what you see over the next 10 or so chapters, because when we get to chapter 50, verse 20, we are told what they meant for evil, God meant for good. That's really developing here, especially in 39. So this entire chapter for us, I think, unfolds for us in in four easy units or four easy sections, and that will sort of be our outline and our guide Uh, today. So let's begin by looking at the first unit or the first section, and we'll call this one the reintroduction of Joseph. The reintroduction of Joseph. You look with me at 39.1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So there is no new information at all here in verse 1. Verse 1 simply serves as a reintroduction to the Joseph storyline. He has been exiled to Egypt. Because we departed from his story in chapter 38, it's necessary for the narrator or Moses to sort of reorient our thinking that we're leaving aside Judah and we're coming back to Joseph. 39.1 does that. It reintroduces him. He has been taken down to Egypt and is in custody to Potiphar. And then notice here, Potiphar is immediately linked again to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Again, this isn't a minor detail. This is a major detail. Moses places this here on purpose. This is because ultimately, Joseph, his rise gets to the place where he is second in command to Pharaoh. So this is a critical time. By the way, this isn't the first time we've been introduced to Pharaoh in Genesis. If you remember all the way back, many months ago in here, in Genesis chapter 15, at the beginning of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, 
remember, because of severe famine, he had to go where? Down to Egypt, and he interacted with Pharaoh. And then later on in the Genesis narrative, we see that many of the patriarchs are interacting with major kings and major rulers and major empires. We saw that in Genesis 13, when Abraham is associated with many rulers. We saw that in the life of Abraham and Isaac when both of them were associated with Abimelech, the Philistine king. And then when we get here with Joseph, you can notice immediately he's, he's slowly being connected to key players in the ancient world. Here, Potiphar, he's a significant player. And then we'll get to Pharaoh later on here in Genesis. Both Abraham and Joseph's interactions with Egypt preview the fact that the Abrahamic covenant will come to pass. Now, if you remember, the Abrahamic covenant can be divided into three parts, land, seed, and blessing. A specific piece of land, seed, the Genesis 3.15 seed, and that all the world would then be blessed. That's what we see here. As Joseph is making his way all throughout Egypt, this is telling us that the plan of God is not only for Israel, but for those nations outside of Israel. Praise God. Thank you. I got one amen over there. That's great. Someone's awake. So Joseph is exiled. He's in Egypt. And that brings us to the second unit that we'll study together this morning, the rise of Joseph in Potiphar's house. The rise of Joseph in Potiphar's house. You follow along as I begin in verse two. The Lord, or Yahweh, was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left, that's Potiphar, he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So this unit, this second unit here, has several factors as to why Joseph was able to rise in power in Potiphar's house. So there's several factors that Moses gives us that tells us why and how Joseph's rise in Potiphar's house came to be. Uh, Let's look at those together. There's just three of them. Uh, The first one was because of the Lord's presence. Because of the Lord's presence. God is in complete control. He is sovereign. Uh, Nothing can thwart his plan. And we saw this repeatedly in this section, verses two through six. Notice Uh, The expression, the Lord, was with Joseph. That's the covenant name Yahweh used. That's why it's in all capital letters in our Bibles. The Lord, or Yahweh, was with Joseph. 
You see this expression or expressions like this five times in this chapter. You see it in verse 2. You see it two times in verse 3, and you see it two times in verse 5. By the way, in all of the Jacob Toledot, God's covenant name, Yahweh, is used twice in 38 and once in 49. So twice in 38, five times here in 39, and then once later on in 49. That is a key indication what the main point of this chapter is about. And as Joseph has made his way to Egypt, it's also indicating that he isn't the one in control, but it is Yahweh. It is God. So from the beginning of this scene, as he makes his rise in Egypt, we are told that Yahweh himself is personally overseeing every detail. He is in control. By the way, that's how this chapter begins and ends. Look down at verses 21 and 23. Verse 21, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. Look at the end of verse 23. The Lord made Joseph to prosper. So it is clear that his rise in power is because of the Lord's presence. But there's a second factor that I think we find here. And that is the Lord's blessings. The Lord's blessings. The Lord's blessings on Joseph are woven throughout verses 2 through 6. Look at verse 2 again. We are told he became a successful man. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And then look at verse 5. Most importantly, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. And notice here, twice, it says the Lord's blessing was upon this situation. Two times in verse time, blessed, blessed. Now, if you were to pull back and do a word study on your own, I'll give you some homework this week, do a word study in Genesis on blessed, you would see that in Genesis 1 through 36, this word is used all the time, a few dozen times. But when you get to Genesis 37 through 50, this word is hardly used, which again is an indication and is to draw our attention to the fact that with Joseph, is Yahweh God, and it is God himself who's doing uh, the blessing. So you can attribute Joseph's rise in Potiphar's house to God's presence and also to God's blessings. But there's a third factor that we see in this text, and this is Potiphar's awareness. Potiphar's awareness. This is verse 3 and 5. Notice verse 3 says, Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Jacob was so blessed and things went so well for him during this time period that even Potiphar, and we're talking about an Egyptian, I mean, he's not really linked in to the covenant people of God. He, he doesn't have really a clue about who Yahweh is. 
But he's getting a fine example of Yahweh through Joseph. And he notices here with Joseph that everything that Joseph is doing is prosperous. There's blessing. He's successful. Potiphar is aware of the situation. Verse 5, same thing. It came about from the time he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he owned that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. So not only here is Joseph blessed, but we see even the Egyptian household is blessed because of Joseph and ultimately because of God. And notice when that switch occurred, by the way, in Potiphar's house, from the time he made him an overseer. So it seems that there was an immediate starting point to when this blessing was recognized by the people around Joseph. So much so, look at verse six, everything he owned was placed in Joseph's charge. I mean, here comes this Hebrew who was basically dumped off by the the, uh, Ishmaelites and then gets into Potiphar's house and out of nowhere, He's experiencing the blessings of Yahweh through Joseph, so he appoints Joseph over everything. It's really shocking. Again, it's tough for us to really get the magnitude of that because we know the story, but imagine reading this for the first time. This is a shocker. So those are the factors that led to Joseph's rise, but such success for Joseph brings about its challenges. And that brings us to the third unit here in Genesis 39. And that is the plot against Joseph in Potiphar's house. The plot against Joseph in Potiphar's house. Now, again, keep in mind, the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph even with this plot that has been concocted. You follow along as I begin reading at the end of verse 6. Now Joseph was a handsome, or now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he, Joseph, refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Why? Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to, did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now this ought not to be shocking for us in Genesis more drama in Genesis. I mean, it's been filled with drama since Genesis 3. And it really begins at the end of verse 6, and this is important here. It's a narrator comment from Moses. Remember, I've told you how important these are as we work through Genesis. When Moses makes a comment on his own, he's doing it to sort of prick our attention, to grab our attention. Notice the comment at the end of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now this is how Esther is described in Esther 2.7. She was beautiful with regard to form and good with regard to appearance. 
In the immediate context, Joseph's mother was described as beautiful. But the narrator comment is critical because this brings us into the drama or the demise of Joseph, you could say, in Potiphar's house. The fact that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance draws the attention of Potiphar's wife. Look at verse 7. She looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now that Hebrew expression there, looked with desire, it means to take notice of. You could even say uh, to lift your eyes and look. So she looked at desire with Joseph and she said, lie with me. By the way, she, she is commanding Joseph to do this. It's an entreaty. It's a command. She is attracted to Joseph so much so that she desires to have sexual relations with him. And notice verse 7, as she's straight to the point. Two Hebrew words, lie with me. On the other hand, thankfully, it's sort of a breath of fresh air. Verse 8, Joseph refuses. So finally, someone in Genesis is acting with some sanity, some godliness, <laughs> not failing first and then learning a lesson, right? So Potiphar's wife, with two words, commands Joseph to lie with her. But then, notice Joseph gives a lengthy response. So we have a short command from Potiphar's wife, lie with me. And then Joseph gives sort of a lengthy response in verses 8 through 9. Throughout Potiphar's wife's desire to be with Joseph and her eventual plot to sabotage him, we see the righteousness of Joseph come to the fore. Now you are familiar with this. We have talked about that God works through the righteous, and we've seen character transformations all throughout Genesis to demonstrate this reality. We just saw that last chapter with Judah. But here in chapter 39, in this section, when Potiphar's wife begins to concoct her plan, not only do we see the plan unfold and its tragedy, but the flip side of that is we actually see the righteousness of Joseph. We see the righteousness of Joseph. That's what this passage shows us. So as he refuses Potiphar's wife and the plot against him begins to roll out, we come across several evidences that demonstrate that Joseph is innocent, he is righteous, and he is displaying virtue. Remember, he has already been behaving this way, and I think that's one of the things that caught Potiphar's attention I know that Yahweh is blessing him. Look at his moral character. It's fascinating. So let's look at these evidences as we work our way through Potiphar's wife's accusation and her plan. Let's see evidences that demonstrate that Joseph is righteous. Uh, the first one is, and this one he's pretty clear, he refused her. He refused her. Her. Uh, this word means to reject, uh, to discard. It was often used uh, in the Old Testament and outside of the biblical record. It was often used of refusing to marry someone. 
So again, this comment comes to us from Moses by way of narrator comment. Joseph refused. He, he had just complete disregard for her wishes. Joseph is innocent and righteous. Another evidence is that he respected Potiphar. He respected Potiphar. Look at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house, and he has put all things that he owns in my charge. Uh, Notice that verse 8, it doesn't say Potiphar by name, but it refers to him as his master, his master's wife. It's referred to as master. That's the title used here. This is showing Joseph's willing submission to him. This is great. Again, Joseph's character is at the fore. He is a righteous man. He refused and he said to his master's wife, demonstrates Joseph's humility, his subservient nature to Potiphar. He respects Potiphar so much that he will not touch his wife. This also shows, by the way, the respect that Potiphar had for Joseph. Well, the evidences for Joseph's righteous character continue to pile up. Let's look at the next one. The next evidence is that he honored God. He honored God. And we see this at the end of verse 10 uh, with a simple statement here. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? I mean, not only did he know that this would be sinful as it relates to Potiphar's wife, He knew it would be sinful as it relates to Potiphar. But most importantly, and this is what he is concerned about, and this is what we should be concerned about when we are faced with temptations, is sinning against God. He doesn't want to do a great evil and sin against God. That is his primary concern. And it is that primary concern that kept him from falling into temptation, and that is our primary concern, or should be, rather, as well. Well, there's a fourth evidence that displays Joseph's virtue, and that is Moses' additional comments. Moses' additional comments. This is verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Moses tells us that she repeatedly, day after day, every day tried to entice Joseph to be with her. So although we're just getting the picture of one scene, lie with me, the fact of the matter is, is that this happened dozens of times. And you can even see a progression in her request or in her sort of plot to get Joseph to sleep with her. Notice at the end of verse 10, it says, lie beside her. So she eventually came to understand that Joseph wasn't going to have sexual relations with her, so she decided she would change the plan ever so slightly just to get Joseph to come lie next to her. And Joseph refused 
Moses tells us that Joseph Joseph repeatedly refused and his righteousness is intact. So both Joseph, chapter 38, or chapter 39, and Judah, chapter 38, have positioned themselves as righteous and potential heirs of the Genesis 3.15 seed. And if we didn't know the story, that would be suspenseful. But we know the story. Well, the scene continues, this unit continues. Look at verse 11. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So it's an interesting turn of events here. As you just saw in verses 11 and 12, the truth of the event is told. What actually Happen. So we get insight on what really happened in this altercation. The remainder of the narrative, verse 12 and following, is a description of how Potiphar's wife twisted the story in events. But at the same time, Joseph's innocence and righteousness is still at the fore. There's a fifth piece of evidence that we get here. And it is that Joseph committed to work. Joseph committed to work. As this scene opens, as he enters into Potiphar's house again, he has no intentions of dealing with Potiphar's wife. Rather, we are told, verse 11, that he was going into the house to do his work. In his mind, This was going to be like every other day. I'm going to do my work that I'm in charge over, and I'm going to deny Potiphar's wife a hundred times. That was his routine. So his ambition and desire that day was to go work. So Joseph comes to work that day, verse 12. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and catches him by his garment and says, lie with me. Again, that's another command. But notice verse 12, something happens that hadn't happened before, which seems to indicate that this was a premeditated act on Potiphar's wife's part. Verse 12, she caught or grabbed his garment. Now this word implies force. It implies a violent act. Joseph's garment, by the way, what he would have been wearing most likely would would have been mid-calf shorts and a long tunic or t-shirt. I'm sure made of perfect polyester, the most comfortable, right? So notice verse 12. She caught it. She grabbed it. She took his garment. Notice verse 12, and this implies that it was some 
violent behavior. Verse 12, it says, Joseph, he left his garment in her hand and he fled and went outside. That expression, and he left, it means to abandon. It's used in the Old Testament to abandon a town. It's also used of a lion abandoning its den. Notice here he fled. It's the same word the Egyptians used when they were stuck in the Red Sea, when they were trying to flee the God of Israel. Joseph, he left. He abandoned the scene. He, he fled. But unfortunately, he left his garment. It was stripped from him. Now, as we read through that text, you probably noticed the fact that Moses mentions garment six times. That is a lot. Six times garment or cloak is mentioned here. But if we think back to 37 and we think back to 38, we should have in our mind that clothing or garments are playing a critical role in the story. Remember, Joseph in 37 was stripped of his, yeah, he's stripped of his garment, his coat. Remember when you get to 38 with Judah and Tamar, remember what does Tamar do with her clothes? She puts off her normal garments, she puts on the garments of a prostitute and then switches back into her normal garments. And then here with Joseph in 39, we are told that his garment is once again taken from him. This is one of the best evidences that weaves together 37, 38, and 39. Remember I told you last time, a lot of liberal scholars think that 38 isn't part of the actual plot. Well, I don't, I mean, every chapter keeps talking about clothes. It seems to be pretty intermingled here. By the way, Joseph needs to get a grip on his wardrobe. I guess he wasn't blessed in that area. Of all the blessings he didn't get. So Joseph has fled. He's off the scene. Notice verse 13 and 14, Potiphar's wife, she calls all the men of the household and accuses Joseph of derision and sexual advances. Look at verse 14 again. He has brought in a Hebrew, referring to Potiphar, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. She calls him a Hebrew. It's, it's her acting antagonistic towards a foreigner. And by the way, we know once we get to the book of Exodus that Pharaoh, or at least the Pharaoh at that time, no longer knew Joseph, right? And that's where the antagonism towards the Hebrews really increases when we get to Exodus. But here you can even see Potiphar's wife. She calls him a Hebrew, and she doesn't mean that as a good thing. She also says, look, he's here to make sport of us. This foreigner is here to rule over us and tell us what to do. And this is an all-out assault on Joseph. And Potiphar's wife sells the story beautifully. She even adds a couple times here that she screamed. So now Potiphar's wife waits until Potiphar gets home because she has some fake news for him. Verse 16, you follow along. 
So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So Potiphar's wife essentially rehearses the entire made-up story and scene, of course sticking to her fictitious story line by line. And moreover, she then blames Potiphar for allowing Joseph to be there. So she is no doubt selling her lie as well as putting guilt on other people. Well, at least on the surface, it could appear that what Potiphar's wife is saying is actually true. I mean, she does have Joseph's garment. Of course, we know otherwise because of how Moses has told the story. But if you're in Potiphar's shoes, how would you respond? Verse 19. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. Potiphar was angry. Based on the fact that his wife had Joseph's garment and he believed her pretty convincing story, Potiphar burned with anger. It's an interesting word here for burned. It means to glow. It means to glow or to become hot. Potiphar was furious. So what does he do? Verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. And that brings us to the fourth and final unit or section in Genesis 39, the rise of Joseph in prison. The rise of Joseph in prison. So things did not end well on a human level at Potiphar's house. Joseph's demise is clearly shown. Again, on a human level. But if we pull back theologically, supernaturally we could even say, God is placing him exactly where he needs him. And that would be in prison. <laughs> and we'll see why in subsequent chapters. But you follow along as I read verse 21. So as Joseph is in prison... The text says, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So as we briefly walk through this final unit, I just want you to see the parallelism between Joseph's arrival at Potiphar's house and Joseph's arrival at the prison. Notice verse two, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man as he was in the house of the master or his master, the Egyptian. Then look at verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, 
but the Lord was with Joseph. Notice back in verse 4, and stay with me here, verse 4, Potiphar extends kindness to Joseph. And here in verse 21, it is Yahweh himself extending kindness to Joseph. At the beginning of the chapter, we are told it is Yahweh himself that is with Joseph, tipping us off to the fact that whatever is about to transpire will go well for Joseph in the end. God is ultimately governing the situation. That's what it was like for Potiphar's house. Now, with that in view, when Joseph enters prison and the same language that is presented here as Moses as a parallel, what should that tell us will be the result of Joseph's time in prison? It's going to go well. We can already see that. Verse 21 tells us that Yahweh, the covenant God, is with him, and his kindness has been displayed to Joseph. Notice verse 21, the word favor Grace, popularity. How does this play out? Verse 22, Joseph was put in charge of all the prisoners and he was responsible for everything in that prison. It's just simply amazing the blessing of the Lord upon Joseph. Now as we wrap up our time, I just want you to see what has been revealed about Joseph so far. His story begins by being thrown down into a pit by his brothers. He's rejected by his family. He was sold as a slave to the Ish 